Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, again, verse 28. Really one of the high peaks of Scripture. It's rare to find any Christian who doesn't not only know this verse, but would list this verse among their favorite. It's very rare to know anyone who's been through any kind of difficulty who would know this verse only cursory, but would have experiential knowledge flowing through the truths that are just packed in these few short words. Romans 8, 28. We've spent four weeks getting to this point, and Lord willing, we're going to be able to finish up this verse, but this verse also introduces the next two, so we will be coming back and visiting some of the truths here in the coming weeks. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I believe the measure of a Christian's growth is always indicated by how he or she responds to adversity or to affliction or to difficulty. You can tell what you believe. You can tell how you believe when difficulty comes. We began our study a few weeks ago with Romans 8, 28, looking at the circumstances that surrounded the tragedy in Horatio Spafford's life that led to his writing, It Is Well With My Soul. You'll remember that he lost four daughters in a mid-Atlantic sinking of a ship. His wife survived, and he traveled then across the Atlantic to be with his grieving wife, And at the point over which the captain said, this is about the place where the ship just a few days earlier had gone down, Spafford went out and wrote the words, it is well with my soul. At the heart of his conclusions that he makes in this incredibly epic hymn that we love, we we cherish so much, is the little phrase, whatever my lot, remember what he says? Thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. Romans 8.28 is the curriculum to be taught that it's well with one's soul. How can you say this in the midst of tragedy? How can you say it's okay, my soul is well? How can you possibly go through adversity, difficulty, trials with, with joy, with purpose, with meaning, with understanding? This is the passage more than any other, I think, in God's word that outlines that. Last week, we talked about two questions that are really at the core of everyone's faith. Do you believe in God? And then the next one, which is probably more penetrating, do you believe God? Will you take God at his word? Is God's word such that we can read it, believe that his truth is not only true in principle and in theory, but actually applies and penetrates into our very existence. Can we truly say with David in Psalm 46, 1, God is my refuge and strength. Then he says this, a very present help in trouble. We've titled this series, It Is Well With My Soul, after Spafford's hymn. And the goal of the series in this one verse has been the most basic practical application of who God is and what he does and our ability to take that and to make it live and function in our lives. 
We believe in God, and Lord willing, we believe God. Well, let's just um, highlight where we've been so far. Uh, I'm going to review the first five points, and then we're going to spend our time in the last two. Because we've broken this, this uh, passage down, this verse down, into seven insights for living under God's providence. Seven insights for living under God's providence. The whole passage is about God's providence. God's sovereignty, as you remember, is God's rule. And it seems way out there, way up there. God's providence is when his sovereignty actually touches and affects each of our lives. The first we noticed is the context of God's providence. The context of understanding God's providence. The context just simply comes in the word and. It's moreover, not only. It's a transition. The previous two verses have described the times of weakness that we have, ultimately ending in our inability to even know how to pray. How do we get there? Well, you have to go back up to a verse we're going to reference several times this morning. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. He's contextually saying this comes in a time of suffering, difficulty, adversity. This adversity can get so severe that verses 26 and 27 say we actually run out of knowing what to pray and how to pray. We come to a cul-de-sac and we just say, Lord, help. And the Spirit not only intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words, he actually intercedes according to the will of God. That brings us secondly to the celebrants of providence. Those who celebrate it, those who can celebrate it. It's the word we. We are the ones and we. Only a Christian, only a believer can have insight and understanding into God's ways and God's providence because they're defined in God's word, which the child of God loves and is nourished by. We are the ones. Now, specifically, we can go uh, uh, to the next um, point in our understanding of God's providence, insight, and that's the confidence. And we know. We are the ones who know something. Over and over, we've highlighted the fact that two prominent individuals who suffered extensively, who had tremendous trials in their lives, Joseph, sold into prison. Job loses his children and his health, his servants and his wealth. All of that without knowing what God was doing. And yet, Paul tells us, we know what God is doing. James also says something very similar. We know that God is causing all things in our trials to do something that's unpredictable to the world. We know that God is doing something. We have confidence. A believer has the ability to look into life with an eye to God and an eye to trusting God that an unbeliever can't. We consider it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing something that God is testing our faith. We know from Romans chapter 5 that we know that God is mysteriously working behind the scenes of our trials to do things in us, on us, for us, through us that we may or may not understand during this, this life. Fourthly, we looked at the cause of God's providence. We know that God causes. That's the New American Standard rendition of this uh, text. It goes from the earliest reading uh, manuscripts of this. Uh, I think it's the better reading. But if your text says all things work together for good to those who love God, 
you're going to end up in the same place. God is the one causing this to happen. The cause of God's providence is God. Nothing has ever happened to which God said, whoops, or uh-oh. He's never elbowed the angels and said, did you see that? I didn't see that coming. God is absolutely the cause. Lamentations 3 We looked at God as sovereign over people. God is sovereign over circumstances. God is serious about our responses. He is the cause. Fifthly, we looked at the confluence. It means where things come together. The confluence of providence. It's the little phrase, all things work together for good. Synerge. Work with. It's the Greek word from which we get synergism. All things synergize in God's providence to work together for good, but not to everyone. And that's where the catch is. That's where you have to really understand what this is saying. The good that we experience as believers is not our comfort, it's not our wealth, it's not even our health. If we have comfort and wealth and health, we should praise God for it. It's a gift of His grace. But we do know that our comfort will ultimately be in heaven, that our wealth will ultimately not follow us after the grave, and that our health will be ultimately rectified by a new body in heaven. This world will not see the end of all things good. But it is doing good. This good is fully defined in the next verse. All things work together for good. How? Look at the next verse. Because we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Is there anything better than that, than to be like Jesus than to be like God's son. Ultimately, then, all things work together to bring each Christian into conformity to Christ and to bring each Christian to glory where our faith becomes sight. Well, that's all review. Now we go to number six, where we're gonna qualify all this because this only happens to a certain group of people. Number six, the children of providence. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Here it is. To those who love God. One of the first and certainly one of the most enduring characteristics of a Christian's life is that he or she has and develops a love for God. A love for God. That God is adorable and we adore him, that he is lovely and we love him. Now, this is nothing new. This is important for you to see. Probably the most significant sermon preached in the Older Testament is in Deuteronomy. Would you flip back over to Deuteronomy for a moment? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's that great passage we know as the Shema. And the Shema is from the Hebrew word to hear. Hear this, Israel. You need to know this. The very foundation on which Israel was to base their relationship with Yahweh, with the God of the Old Testament, who is ultimately incarnated, incarnated in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, he says, Moses preaching, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall, what? Love the Lord your God, how should you love him? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Here, Israel, this is, this is the main thing of the main thing. Turn over to chapter 10. 
Verse 12. This is incredible. Moses asks, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? That's a good question, isn't it? If someone says, what does God require from you? Isn't that something for which you should have an answer? Listen to the answer he provides. What does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and, what does it say? Love him. To serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. Now look how Moses completes and finishes this great sermon called Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He comes to the very end in his climax. He says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. He's moving from the external to the internal, from the surgery to the sanctification. How will he do it? What, what is God after in circumcising our hearts, in making us sanctified? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. It's comprehensive. That's the foundation on which Paul's admonition here is built. His identifying uh, factor in, in who are these people who have this understanding of God's providence. Jesus then says, to a man who said to him, what's the most important thing in the world? What's the greatest commandment? He answered in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. Sometimes we get sidetracked in looking at what does soul and mind and heart mean. We can define that after we remember that we have to love Those are defining the way we love God. It's comprehensive. How can you know that you have a true love for God? Can I give you some indicators? Some indicators that you can test and and, and really try your heart to see, do I really have a love for God? First of all, you have a desire to be with him and in his word and in prayer. You want to be with him. It's not difficult. You want to be with someone you love. I remember when I was first getting to know Kim, I've told you this before, I'll probably tell you a whole lot more times. When I, when I was first getting to know her, I just wanted to be where she was. Wherever she was in the room, that's where I made my way. Wherever we went after church to go out to dinner, that's where I went. Wherever she went, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to be with her. I, I liked her a lot, and that developed into a love. Where she was, that's where I wanted to be. That's a simple earthly explanation, earthly illustration. If God is someone we love, we would want to be with him, want to hear from him, want to talk to him, communicate with him. Is this the read the Bible more sermon? Yes. Yes. Wouldn't you want to be more knowledgeable about and more intimate with someone you loved? If you love God, you want to be with God and you want to learn from God. You want to talk to God. Another sign is you hate sin because it ultimately is sin against God. Remember David? He uh, sins against Bathsheba. He sinned against certainly Uriah by murdering him. He sinned against his leaders who respected him. He sinned against the nation. Lots of people he sinned against. But what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. 
He understood his sin was a personal offense to God. So you'll know that you have love for God when sin becomes defined by your understanding of God. You know you love God when you, when you sin, you see it as a violation of him and the relationship with him. It's ultimately sin against him. Also, worldly pleasures become increasingly less satisfying compared to God. Now, we've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes, studying it on Sunday nights, and we understand that God has given us all things to enjoy. If anybody is going to enjoy part of this planet, it should be a Christian who can give God glory from the things that he has given us. And yet, is there anything more satisfying than God? Remember Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire, what's the next word? Nothing on earth. It means that the things of earth begin to do what? Grow strangely dim. In and of themselves? No, in the light of who he is, his glory, his face, his grace. Also, we begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We're not entertained and amused and we don't laugh at the things that God hates. We begin to love the things that God loves. People become more attractive because they're objects of God's grace. You know that you have love for God when you obey God. It's pretty simple. All throughout the, the scriptures, especially the upper room discourse, Jesus says over and over, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. Do you have an obedience that is characteristic of one that you love? I must have heard a thousand times my sweet wife saying to our boys as they were growing up, yes, but mom, I love you. But if you love me, you will obey me. You will do what I say. Another way you can tell you have love for God is if you love the church. You love people in the church. You just want to be with these people. You love your church. I was in Africa, I told you a few weeks ago, and um, I was describing our church, and people looked really bright-eyed, and then they, they understood what I was saying. I said, I love our church, but our church is so weird. We have goofy people. We have cool people. We have tall people, short people, black people, white people. We, we, have, we have an odd church. We are the Isle of Misfit Toys. By the way, like every other church in the history of the church. But I love that about it, because all that's, 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 that's really weird about our church, God uses and we love each other. It's such a sweet and beautiful thing to see people oriented toward one another, loving each other, caring for one another, serving each other, when there would be no other reason to do that except for a great Savior. I love how distinct and uh, different people are in our church and how God puts that all together and shows the world, look at this. You will know they love me when they love one another, as John 13 says. I love, or I hope you love the church. You know you love God when you begin loving your spiritual siblings. Uh, you can look around. These are the people you're going to spend eternity with. You might want to start getting to know them. We also know that we love God when we want others to love God because we found him to be so wonderful. That's called evangelism. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of our own darkness into glory and grace. We, we want others to find the God whom we love, who, who is so wonderful to us. 
Now with that, I want to show you something that's important that brings a lot of this together. We looked at this briefly last week, Psalm 119. The context is obviously that of affliction and suffering in Romans 8, 28. We've understood it. We've thought about it. We've talked about it. Last week, we looked into the psalmist's attitude about suffering and affliction and how he understood it. In Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after I was afflicted, I keep your word. God causes all things to work together for what? Good. Look at this next phrase. You are good and do good. Remember what we said at the beginning. Do you believe in God? I hope so. Do you believe God? Do you believe this is true? Horatius Bonner, we've, we've gone back to him over and over during this series who said that man's dislike of God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Are you suspicious that he is good? Do you wonder if he's remembered or if he's forgotten? God is good. Then you jump down. He continues to wrestle with this theme in verse 71. It is good for me, same word, good for me, that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Really? Can you say it is good for me that I've been through a trial because it's taught me more of how to understand and obey my loving Father who is good and who does good, Romans 8, 28, and works all things together for good to those who are the lovers of him. We love God. And one of the reasons we love God is because he's good. And that leads us to our final insight into God's providence. The called of God's providence. The called of God's providence. God's greatest good that we experience is salvation. It's that he brings us to understand the gospel. Notice that it says called according to his purpose. It doesn't say invited. It's called. There's a different, different idea than invited. We're going to study this in greater detail in verse 30, which comes back to the same word called. We're going to mention a few issues about it this morning, but next week we're going to come back in verse 30 because he puts it into what theologians call the ordo salutis of the divine decree. I don't know why they have to make such big words. It's the order of salvation. What comes first? Here, this is what this calling God has called us, those who are called according to his purpose. This is what theologians call God's efficacious call or his effectual call. Maybe you've heard that. What it means is God, what God does produces the desired effect that he intended. It's efficacious. It's effectual. This is God's supernatural drawing of a person in salvation. He supernaturally pulls them and woos them in. That's what it means. They're called. And as as verse 30 says, it is indeed effectual. It's efficacious. It's effective. A couple of verses that you can think about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God 
has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you, same word, through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. How does this work out? This is a verse, a passage rather we're gonna come back to over and over in the coming weeks. John chapter six. Verse 44, Jesus said, no, listen, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall be taught all by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now this subject, this issue raises so many questions and can I just give you a little a preview over the next couple of months, we're gonna be talking about the words that, that uh, make so many cringe and squirm and ask what do they mean, predestination, election, um, choosing, call, chosen. All of those are in the end of chapter, here to the end of chapter eight and in the first half of chapter nine. And we're gonna wrestle with them dead on and straight, uh, straightforwardly, but know this. The longer I wrestle with this issue, before we even get into some of the details, I found that it's not, it's rare that someone doesn't understand what these verses say. It's pretty easy to understand what they say. The hard part is believing what they mean. Said another way, understanding is one thing, liking it is another. And so a lot of people, when they don't like the direction that Paul's going, because they don't like what they think that's doing to the character of God or to their own understanding of free will, they say, well, that, since I don't want that to mean that, I won't believe that it says what it says. If you're going to survive the next chapter and a half, you have to swallow hard and say, his ways aren't our ways. There are things that I will understand that are hard. There's things that I don't understand that I'm willing to accept and things that I'm gonna hold in tension that are just fine left in tension. If we could solve the whole you know, man's responsibility and um, God's uh, predestinative work, if we could solve that together, we would write a book and make a lot of money. We're just gonna take it at face value. Let me ask you this. What about man's free will? Well, the problem is, the Bible doesn't use that word, free will, that phrase, free will. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. We've studied this in Romans 6, that you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God and righteousness. Slavery doesn't have the idea of freedom, just the opposite. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God in righteousness. The Bible doesn't describe free will. It describes human responsibility but not free will. And I praise God that we don't have free will. If we had free will, I don't think anyone would ever choose God. Because the wages of sin is death, 
we are born under that, that sentence. We also are dead in our trespasses and sins. We wouldn't choose God. Thomas Aquinas, will come back to this, uh, taught that man is morally neutral and can choose between God or himself or the devil. Uh, we are born in a sin. We are born with a stiff arm in God's face. We are born saying no to God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. If you're smart, and I know you are, you're saying, hang on, time out. If all that God calls are chosen and all that God calls are Christians, then what about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14? Many are called, but few are chosen. You were thinking that, right? And if you aren't, you're going to say you are right now. I understand that. What do we do with that? Well, there's a call spoken there in Matthew that's a general call. It's an external call. It's a call to faith and to repentance. It's an external call that lands on the ears of all who hear the gospel. But he says many hear it and few respond. Yet in Paul's letters, the word call usually refers to God's irresistible calling extended to the elect and only the elect. Here is a general call that Jesus is talking about. Many are called, few are chosen. Many will be preached to. Few are of the elect. So how do we understand the balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty? We're going to talk about that over the coming months. But the called here, at least in where Jesus is saying many are called and few are chosen, the called here reject the invitation and do so willingly. And therefore... Their exclusion from the kingdom of God is perfectly just and entirely on their responsibility. The chosen enter the kingdom of God by only because of the grace of God in God choosing and drawing them. John MacArthur writes this. While whosoever will may come to the Father, only those whom the Father gives the ability will, to will toward him will actually come to him. The drawing here is selective and efficacious, producing the desired effect, upon those whom God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. That is, those whom God has chosen will believe because God has sovereignly determined that that will result from eternity past, end quote. So let me speak out of both sides of my mouth. The only people who end up in hell are there because of their own responsibility. The only people who end up in heaven are there because of God's choice and only God's. And that's the testimony of Scripture. It's a Gordian knot you just can't untie. And if you have questions about that, we are going to spend the next two months studying this together. Because Jacob was loved. Esau was hated. Are you ready for this? Before they were born. More on this next time. But right now, look at the end of the verse. Those who are called, don't miss this, according to God's purpose. Ultimately, that's being saved. His purpose is to save sinners from themselves. God's purposes, though, in our lives, especially in the context here of affliction and adversity, are rarely safe and rarely seen and rarely understood in the immediate Remember, Joseph was arrested and didn't know what God was doing for 22 years. What he perceived as a bad thing was a bad thing in his mind for 22 years until he saw God's purpose in it. 
Remember Job's realization after he comes to, the, uh, to that whirlwind and hears the greatness of God? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. That is a statement of divine sovereignty. I know that you can do all things. And that, ready? No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.2. Then he says, who is it that hides, in, hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Hear that? I can declare now what I didn't understand. He came to the point of getting it. That was after he had met with God in a whirlwind and suffered. We have Romans 8, 28 that tells us. James 1, 2 to 3 tells us. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see. Job says, I went through this horrific trial and now I get it. Now I see God's will and purpose in our lives is exactly what the Spirit of God prays for. In verse 27, he prays according to the will of God. That's his purpose. So do you, will you, trust that God's providence is working on a grand scale in and around and through your life even when you may not see it or understand it? It's the ultimate test of faith. John Murray writes, People are usually more anxious to get rid of the problem than they are to find the purpose of God in it. Can I just read that again? People are usually more anxious to get rid of the problem than they are to find the purpose of God in it. You know what God's purpose is? To make you more like his son. Matthew Henry says, Afflictions are continued no longer than till they have done their work. In other words, if we're still in an affliction, still in a trial, God is still conforming us to the image of his son by that trial. There's purpose in it. Can you say, can you say what Paul says in Romans 8, 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says that, and the way you get there is 10 verses later in verse 28. Now, how can you put all this together? I was reading for the last few weeks um, so much on this, this passage and some very technical articles lots of Greek studies, and ultimately, you know what made this work in understanding for me was a simple story that is told by Randy Alcorn. You'll know where it's going as soon as I started. Randy Alcorn says this. When I was young, my mother used to bake delicious cakes. Before she made a cake, she would lay out each one of the ingredients on the kitchen counter. One day, I decided to try an experiment. One by one, I tasted each one of the individual ingredients to a chocolate cake. Think about it. Have you ever tasted baking powder? How about baking soda? 
The flour was horribly bland, and I won't try to describe the raw egg. Even the semi-sweet chocolate tasted terribly bitter compared to the sweet milk chocolate I was used to eating. To sum it up, almost everything that goes into a cake tastes terrible by itself. The striking thing was that when my mother mixed it all together in the right amounts, placed it in the oven, and laid it out to cool, an amazing metamorphosis took place. The cake was delicious. Isn't that something he writes? While the individual ingredients tasted terrible, the final product tasted terrific. If I would have judged the whole cake on the basis of the individual ingredients, I would never have believed it could be good. It's a great illustration. We go through things that taste terrible by themselves. Do you understand that God is doing something bigger? It's just one of many ingredients he's using to bring his glory, to bring us good, to make us like his son. And one day, verse 18 says, all will be measured, the bad that we see in this world will be measured against the glory we receive and enjoy in heaven. So, Can you say it? When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, they're so bad, like sea billows they roll, that whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my, what is it, helpless estate. How much did he care and shed his own blood for my soul? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole nailed to the cross, And I, what? I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. In the end, he says this. Hurry up, Lord. And Lord, haste the day. Make it it come. When my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. And who shows up? And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. Can you, have you, will you be taught? Will you be taught to say it's well? That's what this verse supplies us with. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are such beneficiaries of so much truth and so few words in this verse. He tested Abraham. He didn't know it. You were doing good through the evil things in Joseph's life, and until the end, he didn't know it. 
how sympathetic we are to Job, who did not know the celestial conversations between you and the enemy, that he would be used as a trophy of your grace. But in the end, he understood. How can we thank you enough for giving us the end right here in one verse? In this simple chapter, knowing that these sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that's coming, to know that all things do work together for good. So I long that we have a church full of people who are lovers of you, who are called according to your purpose. Conform us into the image of your Son and prepare us for understanding that that may go through difficulty and trial and adversity. Father, I beg your grace on someone who may be sitting here who could be watching this, who, listening to it, don't know the Lord Jesus, who have no hope to know what you're doing, no purpose in their, in their future, no hope, no no idea that anything could work together for good because it doesn't. Teach them that there's nothing better than to know you, the most lovely one to love. To see Christ, to understand his life and death, his undeserved, horrific death in the place of those who believe because our glory is wrapped up in the fact that he is not dead. And he himself makes intercession for us with the Spirit. So as we move from this verse in our exposition, don't let us move from it in our lives. I'm very aware, Father, that your providence has brought us to this text to equip us. And no doubt in the hours or days or weeks Months, this year, suffering and adversity is going to come to people in our church. Give us the grace to bear one another's burdens and to be taught by you to say, because of this passage, that it is okay. It can be well with our souls. We pray this because of our great and loving Savior. Amen.